Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to finish Matthew 5 today. Hold your applause. Uh, we're 43 to 40. Oh, my screen is frozen. There it goes. Okay. 43 to 48. If, you, um, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we are uh, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew together as a church. And... Um, Having established Jesus' identity and purpose in chapters 1 through 4, we're now in wrapping up chapter 5, where Jesus has been describing what it looks like to be a Christian. So if you want to go back and read Matthew 5, 3 through 12, you'll get a series of, comp- of qualities or characteristics or attributes of what Christians look like. And, and then in verses um, 21 through 48, Jesus is describing what the application of those attributes looks like in our relationships with people, okay? Relationships, that's where we have been. So just week after week after week, it's bringing the gospel to bear on our relationships with people, and it's constantly reinforcing us to examine our hearts um, and and come to this recognition that, man, we, we can't be righteous enough to be right with God if this is what it looks like. If this is what it looks like to be a Christian, we're we're... This is hard. This is where we're in trouble. And I'm going to come to that at the very end, end today. And last week, um, we looked at verses 38 through, through 42, uh, where, where Jesus is, he's really, you could take uh, verses 30, 40, uh, 38 to 48 as one longer passage, but, uh, but they, they kind of di- uh, divide at verse 43 a little bit. Um, so I, we could take them together. Um, but, but Jesus begins to say, and I want you to think about not just, so like, go back to 21. I want to think about all the relationship, anybody you could get angry with. And then verse 27, I want you to think about the opposite sex. And then verse 31, I want you to think about, if you're married, I want you to think about your spouse. And in verse uh, 33, I want you to think about anybody that you might have to make a promise to. Um, uh, and then in verse uh, 38, through 48, Jesus begins to apply this, the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12 to people that we are antagonistic with, okay? People that you might get into an argument. These are big people that you love, right? They could be members of your family. In fact, they usually are. Um, or they could be somebody that's much more hostile and an- really anti-you, and that's what we're going to talk about, the enemies. So last week, Jesus was, says, hey, look, if you, if you are a Beatitude Christian in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5, then the application of that is that you don't have the right to retaliation when you're insulted. In your normative Christian relationships, when you are insulted, when someone slaps you on the cheek, which was an insult in Jesus' day, not a physical assault, although obviously there was something physical about it, but it was treated like an insult. As a Christian, the, the, the beatitude response is to give them the other one. You, you lay down your right to retaliate. So when someone makes a statement about you on Twitter or on Facebook, you don't comment. Right? Amen. You don't have the right to things. So even if the law, Jesus says, even if the law protects you from losing everything that you have, you as a Christian can't claim right to stuff in your normative Christian relationships. And you don't have the right to convenience with regard to your resources. So your time and your money are the ones that particularly Jesus addresses. And um, there in verse uh, 30 and 42. So in other words, the Beatitude Christian, our lives are not about us. 
We are taught to build our lives or make your own way, protect yourself, get what's yours. You know, it's, all, it's, like, it's like we're all born into families with 10 kids, and if you don't fight to grab a piece of bread, you're not going to get one at the dinner table. You know, that, that kind of thing. Like, we all kind of have that mentality. But Jesus is saying, no, the, the Beatitude Christian is poor in spirit, mournful of their sin, humble and meek, and they're all about goodness in this world. And goodness looks like sacrifice and service. And that applies in verses 43 to 48 to not just people who are antagonistic towards you from time to time, but people who are actually your enemy. Okay. Now, if you're going through your life right now and you don't actually have an enemy, just wait. Enemies are like trials, okay? You're either coming out of one or, or in between or you're going into one. Like it's just, that, it's just a matter of time, but you certainly you've had enemies. And so today's text is an opportunity to reflect on how to bring the gospel to bear to somebody that hates you. Even if it's temporary or if it's permanent, how do you bring the gospel to bear to somebody who hates you or that you hate? So let's stand together and read Matthew 5, 43 to 48, okay? Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brother and sisters... What are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may, you may be seated. So I'm gonna, I want to lay some context for you, and then we'll just explain what Jesus is doing here. I'm going to try to make it applicable for all of us at the, at the end and then and, and kind of wrap, wrap this whole chapter up, up for us. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now remember what Jesus is doing? He's, he's highlighting what it means to be a Christian by contrasting it with the common teaching of the Pharisees of the day. And, the, and so he's not necessarily contrasting it to a text in the Bible, although that's often happening because the Pharisees would occasionally teach the Bible even though they would twist it to their own meaning, as I've tried to show you from, for different purposes. But also because people didn't read. Most people didn't read. And so they had whatever they knew about the Bible and about the Lord, they heard, literally heard, because they had to submit themselves to the authority of somebody who had learned to read. And so Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. This is one of those times where the Pharisees are teaching something that you just won't find in the Bible. You won't find it in the Bible. At best, you could go to Leviticus 19.18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, which sounds a little bit about like love your neighbor. Instead, love your neighbor. Don't take revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's as close as you're going to get. And the clear intent and the purpose of that law was to define what a godly relationship between those you share life with should look like. 
okay? If you're, if you're doing community together, you're doing life together, there's not a lot of revenge. You're not, there's, no, there's no revenge. You're not going to bear a grudge against people who you are doing life with. You, you need to love them like you would want to be loved. That was the law. Okay? That, that was a law meant to define the nature of Christian relationships, of, of biblical relationships, of Old Testament Bible. We are of the Lord. This is what Israel is defined as, loving each other. Okay? But the Pharisees... In Jesus' day, we're teaching, with authority, of course, that if it was true that you were to love your members of your own community this way, then by default, you are entitled to hate someone who is not in your community. So the people in Jesus' day were hearing, yes, love your neighbor, and that gives you permission, if not the responsibility, to hate your enemy. Let me put it to you this way. The Pharisees were basically encouraging tribalism. They were encouraging people to only like the little thumbs up on your Facebook page, the little like button. They were encouraging people to only like and associate with people who thought like them and shared many, if not most, of the same convictions and preferences. And they were encouraging them to strike out at people who did not like the things they liked. They were giving people a biblical license to strike out at Romans, to strike out at Samaritans, to strike out at Gentiles, to harbor resentment, bitterness, and hatred, and vengefulness toward people who were not like them. From the Bible. Now, you hopefully don't have any revered or authoritative teachers of the law telling you to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But we do have something worse. Okay? We have social media platforms. Okay? Now, I don't have time to explain how this works psychologically and socially, and there are a lot of great books that demonstrate this. But I just want you to be aware that you do have powerful institutions in your culture whose very existence depends upon you not obeying this text. Okay. The platforms, because of the way of the human heart and the human mind, are dependent upon you tribalizing, you circling up with people who think like you, act like you, behave like you, do exactly like you, and you can make all kinds of little preferences and groups, and you, before you know it, you have no relationship with anybody in this world who thinks differently than you do along those certain lines, and you begin to form antagonism and hatred and vengefulness and bitterness toward people who don't see the world, you see it. Yes. Okay. And with Christians see the world a certain way, but they love the people who don't. So we have to be careful about the institutions that are at work in our culture that are pushing us to not obey this text. And here's the teaching that Jesus says in verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies. Okay? Now I want you to compare love your enemies with last week in verse 38 through 42. Okay? Last week, the Christian was shown to have no rights. If we're struck or insulted, we do not retaliate. If the law protects us, we even give that up. We don't have the right to convenience. These are all passive responses to actions that our enemies make toward us, right? 
not retaliating, turning the cheek. These are all passive responses to actions that enemies, those who are antagonistic toward us, make toward us. Then Jesus ramps it up as if that were hard enough and says, no, verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies. Now we're not, it's not just passive, it's proactive love towards somebody who is antagonistic towards you. Okay? The highest thing is to take initiative and proactively, proactively love our neighbor and, pro, and our enemies are our number one neighbor. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke, right? So what does this mean? What this means is that your treatment, my treatment of anyone, whether they are a friend or an enemy, is primarily guided by God's view of them and their condition, not my view of them and, and my view of their condition. And God's view of someone's heart is always an image of God. Made, loved, child of God. In, uh, created by God. Imago Dei is the Latin, okay? Now you can see this in verse 45. Because we all know that there are people... Perhaps you know one, perhaps you are one who are foul or evil or unjust. I'm not looking at anybody when I say that. Okay. But verse 45 illustrates that God sends rain on them and, on the, and He causes the sun to shine on them just like He does those who are His children. Your enemies' businesses succeed. Their platforms gain followers. They have life experiences just like those who follow Jesus. In other words, there is common grace, which means that God's attitude toward them is not yet governed by who they are or what they do. His attitude is governed by His love for them at this high and common level, which is not dependent upon anything that they do or anything that they say. That's God's position toward them. That's what verses 45 and 46 are talking about. And that love is what is required to love an enemy. In the same way that God loved us, who are enemies of God, we are to love others, our, we're to love others, our enemies. Mr. Thompson, let's do it now. I told you it might happen. Let's put this, I want, we just read this. All right, the second, um, the ne yeah, the next one, please. Look what we did. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of son, by the death of his son. That was our posture. Thank you, sir. That was our position. Uh, we, we looked at it in 1 Samuel today, rebellion and defiance. That, that was our position. And God loved us, his enemies. And so the only Christian response to enemies is to love because that puts us in a position to demonstrate most perfectly what it is that Jesus did for us. Okay? So when Jesus says, love your enemies, that is completely asinine unless you understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, then it's the only way. If you don't understand the gospel, it's the stupid way. Okay? But if you're a believer... If you're poor in spirit, if you're mournful of your own condition, if you're meek, if you're merciful, if you're pure in heart, if you're a peacemaker, then your life is not about you and it's not governed by you. Your life is about Jesus and it's been governed by Jesus. Your life is not yours. You are dead. Jesus lives in you. 
You're a new person. You're a new creature. You're a new creature creation. You're born again. You belong to a different kingdom. And because of that, you see everything differently than the way the world sees it. You see it in a gospel way. So you love your enemy. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it this way. He says, we need to try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves. To wish that he were not bad. To hope that he may in this world or another be saved. In fact, we need to wish his good. That's what's meant in the Bible by loving our enemy. Wishing his good. Not feeling fond of him. Nor saying he's nice when he's not. I admit that this means loving people who have nothing lovable about them. Love our enemies. Now, if, if you're curious as to what that looks like, how do I do that? Jesus gives us one, one way in verse 44. Look at 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you've got a King James or a new King James, I see that hand. You also have the phrases, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And you wondered why I skipped it when I read from the CSB. Okay. That is because the oldest and most reliable transcripts of Matthew that we have, that we've since discovered since the, since the King James was written in 1600s, those phrases aren't there. Since the King James was made, you know, 1600s, we found older, more reliable manuscripts of Matthew. And those phrases, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you, aren't there. Which is why the ESV and the NIV and the CSB and other translations don't, don't have them. They're perfectly awesome things. I just wanted you to know why I skipped it. Okay? Because it's not, it's not there. But in answer to the question, how do you love your enemies? Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. When our enemy is being an enemy, which I'm translating as persecution, well, I mean, let's just be human for a second, okay? When we are being attacked, the feelings that come are self-defense, fight or flight. Some of you, when you get backed into a corner, you pull out a weapon, okay? Some of you may, maybe you're a flight kind of person, you're just going to get away, but some of, some of us are, are going to fight right back. Thank you very much. Um, you, get, you feel bitter. Even if you don't act, you, you harbor resentment and bitterness and harshness, and, and, you, and you begin to, to re- act completely and solely in your self-interest because you feel attacked. And Jesus says that when you are being attacked by an enemy, the response of love for them is to pray them. Praying does us a world of good in this regard because it reminds us that love controls our relationships. Love controls, if you want to have love control your relationships, enter into a posture of pleading on behalf of that person to God. You cannot be an enemy for someone that you are praying for. You will not treat them like an enemy if you were praying for them. And you don't want to do this piously, okay? So, Lord, I pray for that evil witch. Can you write, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you believe that she did that to me? I pray that you will fix that person. 
that is not the kind of prayer that is going to... You are not pleading on behalf of that person. You're pleading on behalf of yourself to God to fix that person so that you, they're easier for you to love. Okay. Lord, you have taught me to love my enemies, which I am not capable of doing in this moment. So mold me and remind me and teach me because my life is not mine. In the same way that you love me, help me love her. It's different. Okay. So if you want to know how to love your enemy, that's the way that Jesus says to. So we know what it means to love our enemies. And then Jesus has now told us how to go about doing that. As a point of application and conclusion, I want to talk about motivation. Okay. Jesus, in verses 45 through 47, tells us why we need to love our enemies and why that's so consistent, okay? And there are two reasons. Number one is verse 45, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's hardly a Christian that will ever live, that has ever lived, that will not struggle in some regard with eternal security because they have an honest and compelling view of their own sinfulness. It's a part of living, Matthew 5, 3, and 5, 4, and 5, 5. It's a part part of it. But Jesus is saying here, if you want some evidence or fruit or some some piece of, of physical acknowledgement that you are a child of God, love your enemy. In other words, loving your enemy gives you eternal confidence. It gives you eternal confidence. In the same way that you cannot go through life not fighting against lust and think that you're going to heaven. In the same way that you cannot go through life not fighting for a marriage and think that you're going to heaven. In the same way, you cannot think that you're going to heaven and not fight to love your enemies. Okay? Love your enemies, Jesus said, so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. It is the penultimate way of describing and and bringing the glory of God and the gospel truth to bear in this world. Christians loving enemies in their normative relationships. That's what it means to be a child of God. You want to go right for the heart of it. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Why? Because of Romans 8. It, it, It describes and defines the relationship of Jesus to his people. Okay? And it gives you eternal confidence when you display eternal truth in your relationships. And then lastly, I've just said it. I'm running all over the place, tripping over the same truth. It, enemy, the um, Loving our enemies is, is temporal influence. It gives us eternal confidence, but it, it, is, it is temporal influence. It is the ministry of the church to this world. Look at verses 45 through 47. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Okay. Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Christians should be known for the relationships they have with the sinners. They should be known for the friends they have who are enemies. Loving our enemies gives us temporal influence. It is gospel being brought to bear in this world. Don't miss this. 
according to Jesus, the most, de- the most distinguishing mark for the Christian is love for enemies. Enemies love each other, but they don't love Christians. Christians love each other, but they really love enemies. Enemies love each other, but they don't love Christians. And Jesus says Christians love each other, but the thing that really sets them apart is that they love their enemies. We have, in this passage, a connection to, um, to, to Jesus that I've already tried to highlight. I have eternal security because Jesus loved me and I was his enemy. Okay? And no person has ever or will ever have had a greater influence in this world than Jesus who did so by loving enemies like me. So if you want some fuel, some, some, some uh, motivation to know that loving your enemies will actually work, read the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> Look at the life of Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished. Can anybody compare in any way to the influence on this world compared to the man who left it all behind and loved people who hated him? No. And that is the ministry of the church. I am, I've picked back up a, a book called uh, Jaber Crow. It's by an author named Wendell Berry. And um, it's, a, it's a book about uh, a kid who grows up to be a man. And he, and, he, and he, through a long series of interesting events, he becomes a barber um, in the 30s and 40s and 50s of whatnot of this time. Kentucky called Port William. And as he's there for a long, 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 long time, so I'm, I'm recalling this from memory because I, as I'm rereading it, I'm not there to this part yet, but I'm pretty excited to get there. Uh, because there's this really, he's, he's been there for a long, long, long time and he's built all these relationships. And you know, he, he has this comment in chapter nine. He's like, you know, barbers are a lot, or knowledge just has a way of coming to a barber. <laughs> right? When we were talking about a lot, right? Like if, you, if you've ever worked in, you know, in, 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 with, with people here, I mean, they just, it's like, they just start talking. And, and because people come, you end up with all kinds of knowledge. It just has a way of finding you. And so over time, Jaber has relationships with everybody in the community. He cuts everybody's hair. And uh, he's having this argument, or he's listening to this one guy in his, off, in the, in his barbershop just go on and on and on about an enemy in a, or a set of enemies, a people group of enemies. And Jaber just finally, you know, he has to be careful not to have an opinion sometimes because he, he loses every relationship in town. They, they just, go five miles down the road to get their hair cut. But he, finally, Jaber comes to this point where he says, he just starts quoting Jesus and quoting this passage in particular about loving your enemies. And the guy says, well, who said that? And Jaber says, Jesus said it. And the guy says, oh, well, you know, and there was no conversation thereafter. And then Jaber, he gets writing in the first person, says, it would have been one of the greatest moments of Christianity except that I did not love that guy. (laughs) So he was right, but he didn't love his enemy. He felt better about putting his enemy in his place than he did about loving him. And he knew, and ironically, he was doing it using the verse, love your enemies. 
You see the heart problem? This is why Jesus says in verse 48, you have to be perfect. You have, as your heavenly father is perfect. The Pharisees, you have heard it said, 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 and they were, they were saying all things that a human being in his own volition, in his own effort, could actually accomplish. Which means that imperfection is acceptable to a holy God. They were not preaching biblical truth. And Jesus came and says, well, no, actually, it's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. And let me give you example after example of example. It's a heart problem. So you see, you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And hopefully that passage takes you to the place where you don't walk out of here going, well, I'm going to try really, really hard to love my neighbor today. No, what hopefully is you come out of here praising God that he actually loved his enemy, you. And he actually loves the enemies that you have. And he will use you and empower you to love them that way by you telling yourself again and again and again that he loved you, his enemy. That you will be fueled with gospel power. Okay? Let's pray again. We rejoice, Father, that you loved us, enemies in rebellion and defiance. You loved us. And that, um, that that truth is motivation. Um, it's, it's the motivation and the message. It's the motivation to love our enemies, and it's the message that we tell ourselves to love our enemies, and it's the message that we tell our enemies that God loves enemies. So make us wary of institutions and, uh, and of, of, of systems and processes that separate us from our enemies and lead us to be bitter or anger or hostile toward them. Put us in relationships with people so that, uh, the, who are, so, so that we have an opportunity to bring the gospel, pair, gospel to bear on them. Help us to love our enemies, which means help us to pray for them. Uh, I can, I, I'm, I just, surely a hostile relationship is reason to go to prayer. Like there's not a lot of pride that I have, I would have left, I would hope. I'm just, I'm not capable of loving an enemy. So drive us to our knees to, to pray on behalf of people who do not like us and that we, apart from the gospel, could not possibly love. So that in praying for them, we love them and we learn to love them in other ways. Thank you, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.